been on somewhat of a self-imposed hiatus from Salesforce for a while. Self-imposed meaning? Um, yeah, so my relationship with Salesforce got to be a little less than healthy. Um, just frustrations with directions and the technology and the platform and support and some issues with some of my clients that Salesforce was very much not being a customer company <laughs> and just got, I just got tired of it. So, um, so like self-imposed, you mean you just kind of tried to avoid doing anything Salesforce, uh, Salesforce related? Pretty much. Um, but this week I did some, um, I had a client that needed me to do some things. So um, it was basically an extension to an application a pretty decent sized application that I'd built for them a while back. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, so yeah, so I, I noticed that there was a new version of the Eclipse plugin. I think it was, it's, I guess for the API version 30. Um, one thing I noticed about it though, is that they support versions of Eclipse that were built in like this decade. Um, cause before I think they only supported like Eclipse 3.6, which I don't know. I was like, how old is that six or seven or eight or 10 years old? <laughs> Super old. <laughs> it's probably not that old, but probably a good, I want to say three, 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 three years, maybe. Oh, pff, way more than that, man. No, 3.6. What's it at now? Yeah, it's, look at a, uh, 4.3. Yeah. And yeah, I think it was a good three or four years ago. When was that released? Um, 2010. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yep. Anyway, that's, isn't that, that's like 30 years in technology years. Right. So anyway, I, and I was pretty excited. So I installed a new force.com plugin into Eclipse 4.3. Um, and I also hit, um, had gotten some feedback from a, a case I've had open with Salesforce for seven months for a client that basically cannot do any apex or visual force work whatsoever because something's wrong with their org. And Salesforce hasn't been able to figure it out. And it's been, it's been exp or not expedited. What's the word escalated mm-hmm. to R and R and D supposedly <laughs> for like four or five months now. And so they said, uh, they, they actually added a comment to the case recently and said, Hey, we released a new version of the eclipse plugin. And that we think that probably fixed it, which of course is crap because the eclipse plugin is just, it just uses the metadata API, right? It's right. It's not, it was nothing wrong with Eclipse. So anyway, I thought, well, I'll, I guess I have to check to see if maybe, they're, maybe they're right. Of course they weren't. It's just another example of being a horrible customer company. So you think they just kind of, kind of crossed their fingers and hope that whatever issue you're having was solved by the new plugin? Dude, the Salesforce support will say or do anything to get you to allow them to close a case. They've, they've, they've done this things like this to me at least a dozen times on this one case. Um, but anyway, so that's actually not, was not my point. Um, my point was I had, that I was going to make was that I'm, I had forgotten how slow Salesforce development is. And it's kind of funny because you, you hear these anecdotes about, you know, building or getting started on Salesforce in 30 seconds or, you know, whatever people, 30 minutes, I don't know, you know, and then, you know, I hear people say that, oh, we, we built this. Um, I was watching um, one of the Dreamforce little vignettes about this apparel company. And they said, you know, we built a, you know, our mobile app for Salesforce in a week. Like, well, either 
that was a really, really simple app or you've got access to some Salesforce that I don't because it's just brutal. It's, and I even opened up um, Charles proxy and was like capturing the metadata traffic. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, I haven't really run an analysis of it yet. I'm, I'm going to have to write some little script that processes through the, the um, XML, but I want to, I want to really do an analysis of the timing. I mean, it's just terrible. I mean, every, so I'm, you know, I'm working, I'm making code changes. I'm, I'm modifying tests, creating tests, running tests, saving changes, running tests, saving changes, running tests. And every time you do that, you're waiting for anywhere from six to 30 seconds. And it, it's just, it's brutal how slow thing, how, how much it drags things down. You know, and I've been working on a, um, a, a Java project for a while and I'm used to, you know, tests, unit tests taking, you know, fractions of a second, milliseconds, and I can run, you know, a thousand unit tests in a few seconds. Um, and so this was just, you know, the funny thing is, is what, what I'd forgotten is when you hit save, which results in a compile or, or when you run a test in Salesforce, what's the first, I don't know. You probably don't notice this, but you immediately flip over to your browser or Twitter or something because you know, you're going to be waiting. And of course, what turns out happening is, you know, maybe it only took 15 seconds to run that test, but how long did you just spend on Twitter? Like two minutes, probably just checking like your newest, you know, whatever's latest in your feed. And so it just, it's, it's just enough time for you to get distracted. And a lot of, a lot of people, I'm sure I'm not the only one that suffers from this. In fact, I think most, maybe most developers do. I'm, I'm a little bit ADD. So those, all that waiting really is distracting. I mean, I can't just sit there and watch that eclipse fake progress bar for 15 or 60 seconds. I've got to do something else that I've, that would drive me nuts. And so it ends up just in taking more time, but even without that though, just gosh, the time that you're, that you're spending every time something happens, it's like, you know, it's, and it's not just a round trip to the server. Cause I, I was watching those metadata calls. They come back immediately. Like you submit something to be compiled. That call comes back, you know, under a second, but it, you know, then it starts pulling for status to see when the compile is finished. Right. And even if it's just a really small change, I mean, it can still be depending on the org, some orgs, again, some orgs are really slow. Some, some of them that I think don't, don't have as much are faster or if they're newer, they're faster. It's, it's, I don't know. There's, I'm not sure what all the factors are, but, um, it's slow and it's the productivity is just, it's not good. Yeah, I agree. I mean, even, especially with deployments in, in large or in large instances, I mean, it could take 30 minutes to an hour for something to deploy. It's, and we've kind of talked about it before that the time it takes, it costs, costs our customers money. I mean, it, we're sitting there having to monitor this deployment that's taken 30, whatever, how long we're long to run. And that's, that's time that we're having to sit there and bill because it's, that's what it takes. And then you, you mentioned, you know, an app taking five weeks. Now that's probably one of those point and click type apps, but even if it was a custom coding app and someone said they built it in say a week or two weeks, knowing what we know about how long it takes to wait for compiles, for unit testing and all that kind of stuff. Imagine how much time would be saved if they improved that. Yeah. I mean, I think I wish they'd work on that because this is just one of those things that and it doesn't, know, always, building, it doesn't always necessarily have to mean that we can do it in half the time, but it may mean that we can do, we can produce better code, more quality code, because now we have the time to actually, you know, do much more thorough testing. We have the time to do much more um, different scenarios in our testing or even different scenarios in our code and, and do some things like test-driven development, things that 
just aren't possible because it just takes too long to run those things. You know, but, but Salesforce is pretty good at the, you know, zero to 60, right? I mean, if you've, assuming you've got an org already, um, you've got a database, you've got, you know, kind of a data service API, um, what's it called? Sockwell or mm-hmm. whatever. Right. Um, you know, you've got authentication, so you get some stuff out of the box that, that gets you going really fast. So Salesforce, you know, I think in a lot of cases, they definitely win that, you know, what can you get built in 30 minutes? Um, but I don't know about you, but I mean, most, most of the work I get hired to do is, are not little crummy apps. They're going to be bigger things. Yeah. I think and when you're, that, when you're talking about assembling an application, and not building an application when you're just kind of assembling it from existing Salesforce technologies. It's fast. It's fast. You can get a lot done. It's good quality stuff. It's proven technologies. So you can put something out there and get it out there and it works. Um, but once we start getting into the realm of custom, um, you know, that's where we kind of run into the the performance issues um, just in our, our workflow of development because the tools take so long. And one thing that I was pretty excited about was the, what, what do they call the, the technology that, uh, I guess technology may be a little bit of a stretch, but whatever that allowed you to, um, bring in like a third part, like a, a, an app that you run on your own system. Um, you can bring it, you can run it in like a Salesforce window and they do something to, to, to overcome the, uh, cross domain. Oh, a canvas application. Yeah. Canvas. Have you done canvas yet? Um, not in any real world practice, but I've played around with it and prototyped some things for some clients that were looking into using it. Yeah. So that I think is still interesting. Um, I just, I haven't had a good use case for it yet. Everything that I've been doing actually is really kind of existing apps that are just very apex and visual force based. But I think on my next, you know, when I get a chance, I'm going to check that out. And if I get a greenfield project, I'm going to, I'm going to try that. Yeah. I think, because I think then, what you met, just mentioned is probably one of the one of the main things that happens with those projects with, in terms of canvas because it sounds really great you can run this third-party app but a lot of times we're talking about integrating existing applications and that means reaching into under the hood of those applications to kind of make that handshake with salesforce so a lot of times it doesn't end up being the right technology unless of course you're building something from scratch or you own the application I- and you can reach under the hood yeah, I, th- I think with Canvas, you it you definitely need to build it in a certain way. Um, yeah, I think if there's a JavaScript. I think one of the common things is just using a JavaScript API, right? But at least you know that may help this problem of just Apex and Visual Force compiling are just slow, and tests are slow, and deploying is slow. Yeah, but that that only alleviates, alleviates it because you've pulled your code out of the Salesforce environment and you're running it somewhere else. Well, and I think that solves a lot of problems or a lot of my problems. That's what I want to do. <laughs> yeah. The kind of the, that's, the that's what I'm model kind of just, yeah. 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 I mean, you know, build it. You could, I mean, you could do a canvas app that was running on Heroku um, or on anything else. So anyway. the, main, the main problem, the main hurdle with that is the fact that you'd have to acquire Heroku licenses to run that application. It's a separate cost. So it's not like, you know, for most companies, they're trying to build something on top of Salesforce, the the Salesforce they already have, the Salesforce they're already leveraging. And so this would just kind of be an additional cost for them to be able to do that. It'd be an additional cost, but it's not really licensing per se. 
um, there may not be any licensing you have to do, but you do have to, you know, you have compute resources that you're having to pay for. Right. Yeah. It is a different cost model. <clears throat> anyway, so what's on your list for tonight? So I was, I keep my, my thumb on the blogs and, um, one article came across and the title actually caught my attention. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I should bring this up with you because you, you have a special place in your heart for <laughs> this kind of stuff. But I thought the article was well-written. It had had some pretty good supporting documentation, and I think there's a lot of good things to debate in it. Um, so the title is called uh, How Salesforce One Can Help Developers in India Become Mobile Developers. Okay. And um, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but it's written by Raja Rao DV. And a DV meaning that's the... The, the last two letters of the name it's dv so hmm. i hope i'm saying the name right or you know not messing it up so it's not like it's not like it was written you know by an indian for indians type of thing I, i'm guessing i'm guessing but what i thought was interesting and what caught my attention is he started the article out talking about salesforce and and kind of brought in some supporting documentation in terms of salaries which i thought was interesting um and these were salaries posted by i want to say indeed that sound correct? Probably. Yeah. So it's indeed. And, um, what they show and what, what he was trying to illustrate is the, the salary that a, an average Salesforce developer gets listed for. So meaning that there's job postings out there for a certain salary and what the average salary is that versus other technologies. And the graph showed web development, Salesforce and .NET. Um, web development and .NET were, uh, well, web development shows 81,000 a year. .NET showed about 88,000 a year average. Again, these are job listings, not actual salaries. But what they're saying, they'll pay someone to, to come on board. Salesforce, they have listed at 93,000. I, I believe it. So it, it was a really good supporting article because if you look at those numbers, you can understand why you'd want to be a Salesforce developer because right now they're commanding the highest salaries of those technologies. Right. Which is why I, which is why there are so many, well, actually there's not that many, but there are, I, I know several developers who used to be, um, you know, like Java developers, for an example, that are now sell, that are just whole hog Salesforce. They've got, you know, every certification you can possibly get and they carry the water. Right. Right. Um, and it's because they make more money. No question about it. I mean, I guess I can't blame them. You kind of got to go where the money is. Right. Or, or some people probably might feel they do, or if they can make more money in Salesforce than what they were doing before, then you know, do what you got to do. So what does it have to do with India though? Well, I think it's just trying to show, show, you know, that there's high demand and because of that high demand there, your, your salary, um, matches that demand obviously if there was a flood of salesforce developers that salary would probably go down um but i guess the point is that that in correlation to that you know we've all been developing applications on salesforce and they're all kind of web-based applications but now salesforce has the has salesforce one and their mobile sdks and so a lot of those technologies that you've been using can now be leveraged um, to build these mobile applications now, to be clear, the, the mobile applications that we're talking about are still web-based um, technologies that are kind of wrapped in a, a kind of a browser shell that are running on mobile devices. So you're not really writing native applications. You're still writing HTML5, CSS, JavaScript, and all of those technologies, and they're running on the, 
they're running in a browser inside of your your mobile device. Yeah. So speaking of mobile, I mean, so you you've said that a couple of times. Um, I've seen some fairly significant backpedaling about whether Salesforce One is a mobile thing. So apparently, there's this big perception that Salesforce One is all about mobile, mm-hmm. um, but it's, uh, I guess. Uh, Mark Benioff and maybe some others were questioned about that and let's see if I can find, let's see. Yeah. So there was a Twitter conversation. Yeah. So Mark says, Mark Benioff said, has there been a platform for enterprise app dev app dev to build once and run everywhere, including iOS and Android native phone, tablet, and PCs. And this person says, no, but you did introduce Salesforce one as that big mistake. Now 60% of people think it's a mobile app. Bad. Mark says, isn't true. Were you at the keynote? Salesforce one is the new customer platform for (laughs) devs, ISVs, admins, end users, and customers. I wrote myself. (laughs) It's a very confusing message. Salesforce one is a very confusing message because I, I think everyone walked away from, from Dreamforce believing Salesforce one is a mobile technology. Um, I'll tell you, but between all the different acquisitions that they've done in the past few years and haven't integrated and all the rebranding they've done, think of everything's a cloud now. And they, they started rebranding lots of things as cloud. So people think that, you know, X cloud is this new thing when in case, when in reality, it's just a new name for existing things. And, and that, and then all these, you know, and then there was touch and chatter and supposedly all these new APIs, which may or may not be a good thing. And now Salesforce one, which people, I mean, I think the jury's still out on whether, you know, how much is actually there. Um, it is, I mean, I'm confused. I'm very confused by, and I don't, the thing is, how do you come up with a coherent message when you're talking to clients? Or how do you help them? How do you, I mean, I think, I guess that's a challenge for, you know, these Salesforce consultants, but I mean, the Salesforce consultants I know are having a very difficult time with this. Yeah. And I think it's going to be our job to kind of help our clients understand, you know, what they can and can't actually do with these different technologies and what their options actually are. Um, And that's always kind of been the case with Salesforce. We've always kind of had to cut through all the marketing hype. I mean, every Dreamforce, there's always some huge campaign about how you can dream it and build it and do whatever you want. Um, but the reality is, you know, once once we start getting real world requirements, we have to kind of level set on what what is actually possible with this technology. Yeah, whether it's um, governor limits, you know, proprietary restrictions just due to the proprietary nature of it, limited integration capabilities, a terrible soap stack. There's, you know, there's where the rubber meets the road and that's, you know, that's what I think I've, you know, I think I've done an okay job at dealing with and, and trying and educating clients on, but I mean, the, it's getting thick now and it's getting harder and harder to, for, it's getting harder and harder for Salesforce's customers to know how to use these tools and what, and what they really are. I mean, there's, there's so much rebranding and marketing and positioning going on that it's just hard to tell what's real and how to make sense of all these things. Right. So I wanted to go through these bullet points that he kind of mentioned. And let me say, let me just finish up on okay. that, that, that um, it's, it's to the point that the, the analysts 
are all, a lot of the analysts are confused and they're asking all these questions. Yeah. So, so on these bullets, um, so the first one is kind of the, the very common look, ma, no code, <laughs> which, which always kind of, it obviously kind of illustrates the the point and click interface that you can do with Salesforce. Um, and I really hate the way Salesforce has blurred the line on application development um, with point and click tools. Um, it really bugs me because I, you know, when we talk custom application or app- building applications, I really think about developers getting in there, going through their, their life cycle process of gathering requirements, building things to fit the requirements. Um, but that's my world. And the the world that Salesforce is is targeting are admins and point and click, you know, development. So so what in relation to the Salesforce one application, what 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 he was describing is that, you know, you can of course build custom objects, build custom page layouts, and those are immediately available on on the Salesforce one uh, mobile application. So that was point one. On point two, um, he was highlighting that that it's the power of hybrid. And that really gets into the underlying technology that that this is using, which is basically standard HTML5 web-based technologies that are being um, hosted within a browser on your device. So you kind of get that compile once, run everywhere um, model, but it's really kind of a trick. It's not running natively per the comment, um, per Benioff's, or was that Benioff or was that someone else's comment on the Twitter Twitter description you you mentioned. Yeah, I mean Benioff was he was communicating. It was it was Benioff and a couple of analysts. Yeah, and that, that's very much true. It's it's there aren't many. I mean, I think he said no one, but I think there are some technologies out there that do attempt to take these um, HTML five JavaScript things and actually compile them down to native. But they're they're not technically um, run once run run everywhere. There's still some nuances there you have to deal with. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's no technology that fully abstracts the difference between, you know, a desktop size screen and a mobile size screen. If, right. If, if you are not doing something to actively deal with that, then you're going to have crappy apps. And I haven't used Salesforce one enough to know, but I guarantee you, I've got all kinds of visual force stuff that I've developed in the past that does not either doesn't work well on Salesforce one or doesn't work at all. And so the next bullet is Uber custom Salesforce one. That was kind of interesting because you would think that now we're getting into custom development. Now we're talking about developing Visual Force pages and displaying them. So what do you mean? So Uber custom Salesforce one, what does that mean? Well, it's really referring to the fact that now with, so the previous technology, the, the predecessor to Salesforce one, at least the mobile application was Salesforce touch and Salesforce touch was horrible. It had a lot of limitations. It didn't live up to the promise. Um, it just, they just kind of dropped it and renamed it and rebranded it Salesforce One. And so what it became is what Salesforce Touch should have been, which is all the native Salesforce objects that you can get, custom objects, plus being able to write custom Visual Force pages that will run on Touch. And that's kind of what this is referring to, is that you can now build custom user interfaces that will run on the Salesforce One mobile application using Visual Force. And so that kind of opens things up because... A lot of times, some of the customizations we've had to do in the past are, you know, custom inputs for things, custom, and maybe it's a custom way of entering accounts and contacts or some kind of way to make the the process more efficient. Um, Sometimes it was to actually 
take over control of entering, say, an account or a contact and be able to apply additional business rules to that. Um, since you can't really hook into um, a lot of the save routines or anything like that um, directly without using a trigger, um, say, to do a call out or to interface with other third party applications, we had to kind of customize that. And so when customer, when users started going to mobile devices and using these technologies, um, we lost the ability to control that. So they could save an account without going through our business rule process that we customized in Salesforce. So, so the ability to actually run our custom pages and custom logic on, on Salesforce one is a big deal. Yeah. And that's one of the things that they're touting is that, that Salesforce one fixes and I mean, there may be some use cases that it does, but I don't know. Um, you know, I'm still skeptical. I don't, I don't think they're there. Like I said, if you're, if you're not directly dealing with providing some kind of, um, kind of abstraction layer or you're not going to get responsive, you don't get responsive for free as an example, right? You have to directly put, you know, pivot points and, and scaling points so that you can control how how your application is responsive, right? Right. You just, there's no responsive for free. You have to tell it, you have to design the UI to be responsive in certain ways. And so, so the next few bullet points, they they just talk about third-party applications, which you can basically launch a third-party application that's, you know, running Canvas or something like that, or has some of that identity services provided. um, And you can run them from that application. So there's really nothing big there to talk about. Um, the one after that is, is social networking, which I really didn't want to get into, but it's basically the chatter stuff or any, any other kind of tools you want to integrate with that. Um, next one was it talking about extending Salesforce, the back end. Um, and that's kind of going back to the, the previous point that we were talking about, which is being able to use Apex with, with that Salesforce application, meaning, you know, customize the interfaces, have some kind of back end technology that, that we can control that will run all our, all our business logic and things like that. Um, and then of course the, the one of the final bullet points is enterprise grade security, which is kind of the main thing that Salesforce offers in terms of their, their model, their data models that you have all those multiple layers of security and all of that is enforced. So what was the title of this article? I mean, these bullet points just, I don't get it. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's kind of, why it interested me so much after reading it again is because it talks about how Salesforce one can be, can help developers in India become mobile developers. And then, it, Oh, this is the, this is the India article. Yeah. Okay. It's, this, this sounds like a very poorly written article <laughs> for people who are going to develop a bunch of poorly written software. I don't think that's the target. I think so. So here's my take on this article. Here's my review on this article. Is that it starts out pretty solidly in, de- in defining why you would want to be a developer on Salesforce because Right now, the demand is high. The salaries are there. It's a good place to be. And then it talks about, well, everything's, or the perception is that everything's moving to mobile. Everything is, is Salesforce One is, is really going to kind of fit into that world really well in that you, you can build custom interfaces for it. You can use your point and click tools to build things for it. Um, you gain the advantages of the security model. You gain the advantages of all the point and click tools. Um, you gain the advantage of that distribution model since it is kind of web-based technologies. You're not having to compile for every, um, every device that's out there. Does it talk about all the disadvantages that you gain? It does not. Yeah. So that's a, again, poorly written article. 
But the article, again, just kind of basically describes using our current skill set. And, and from the perspective of this article, the current skill set of the, you know, average Indian developer working on Salesforce um, and applying that to mobile. But I think what it misses is some of the points that you mentioned earlier, which is that, so you still have to design for responsiveness and you still have to take into account the fact that you're, you're building two separate interfaces. You're not building one visual force page for Salesforce and that's going to automatically show up on mobile. Um, you still kind of have to take the time to work and and build those independently and make sure that you're kind of building for that performance, the difference in those performances of those devices. So, I mean, are people honestly believing that you can you can write just one thing and it's going to run great and look great and be responsive and be a good experience on all different types of devices? And I think that's what happens. I think that's exactly what happens with the way Salesforce markets because they're so focused on the point and click tools that they, they completely cloud and muddy over what custom application really means, custom application development really means. Because they, they have their custom tools for building, quote-unquote, applications using point-and-click tools. And those tools, of course, will automatically be available on all devices because you're using the Salesforce predefined templates. If you create an object in a view in Salesforce, you can get that same object in view optimized for mobile devices on Salesforce One. But once you get into custom development, custom designing pages, custom designing Visual Force pages, you still need that skill set. You still need someone who understands how mobile devices work, the best way for user experience, um, and the best best solutions for performance. So I bet if you stick to some guidelines, I bet there are. And I haven't read any. I haven't read the Salesforce One docs yet, but I bet I bet there are guidelines. And if you stick to the standard Visual Force components, don't wander off the reservation at all you probably get a decent experience right across devices. Not great, but not terrible. It's probably decent. In fact, I mean, what I've seen so far from Salesforce one, even for the, for this, the out of the box standard things, it's not great. It's decent. You can, you can get your work done. Um, it's not going to win any awards though. But I mean, so much think of the work that, I mean, I can think of tons of stuff that you and I've both done that, Required completely getting out of the visual force box, you know, this, just the standard components and, and things. Um, none of that stuff's going to work. That's the type of thing. Cause if you, if you read, you know, the fine print on Salesforce one, it says that, you know, most visual force applications will, will run on Salesforce one with little modification. <laughs> <laughs> well, not the stuff that I've written because it's been some fairly complex and advanced stuff that you can't accomplish with with vanilla visual force but if you do if you stick to vanilla visual force you probably get a decent salesforce one experience yeah and again a lot of that comes just comes back to us educating our clients and cutting through that marketing um i say that because we're deprogramming we are after they go to dreamforce (laughs) (laughs) well not only that i mean we're having to level set on the reality of creating these types of applications these applications that they use every day I mean, if you take an application that took a year to develop on native technologies, native Apple iOS technologies that had a great team behind it, a great team of user experience developers, a great team of backend developers, a great team of, of et cetera. These apps are, are quality. They're fast. They're responsive. They're built well. They integrate well with the hardware of, the, of your device. And this is the expectation of the average person. So the average person, when they hear you can build something 
a mobile application on Salesforce, um, that's what they're expecting. And that's what we have to try to deliver with these technologies. And I'm not so sure that, that, that it's as easy as Salesforce is making it to sound. Similar yeah, to the way really when VisualForce came out and we could build custom applications and we had customers going, I like the way Google did it. Do it the way Google did it. Do it the way Google Spreadsheets did it or do something like Google Word or, or, or something along those lines that they were using all these tools that they use on a daily basis as a, as a metric, as a baseline for what they wanted the customization to look and act like. And we had to go through the process of educating what it really took to build that and what it's going to really take for us to build it on Salesforce. Yeah, I mean, because think of, think of really well-built apps. I mean, every, every character of markup and of the CSS and of the code is very carefully handcrafted for performance, for optimum layout, for flexibility across you know, sizes and responsiveness and all that kind of stuff. That, you don't get that for free ever. Right. That just, take, that just takes people with a lot of skill and experience and hard work yep. to get those really premium experiences. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what's missing from from articles like this or even from the marketing of what Salesforce won or what mobile development is like on the platform. Um, but look at where Salesforce is going. I mean, they are they are so far along on the enterprise soft the enterprise software path now. And enterprise software is one of these things that it's not it's not made for the best experience and it's not made for the people who use it. It's made for the people who make the buying decisions then how can you be a customer company? Well, you can't. Unless, unless you're Salesforce irony. and your and, customer and Salesforce, is... No, and Salesforce is not a customer company, which is also ah, I, I have a different opinion on that because Salesforce's customers are enterprise companies. I know, and that's why I'm saying Salesforce is built for the people who make buying decisions at those enterprise companies. Right. It's not made for the people who use it. But, and that, that's where good developers come in, though. That's where, that's where our job comes in of educating clients on what can be built and, and what, you know, what their options are. And it, it really comes down to having a good team, good developers. Um, if it's a large-scale application that you're expecting a certain experience on, it's, it's having the right people with that skill set. It's having someone who has a, a fair amount of experience with user experience or even that's their, that's their primary focus. Yeah, and, and I'm not – by the way, I'm not diminishing – the the work that a lot of smart people at Salesforce have done on, I mean, Salesforce is, they've got some really incredible engineers and, um, and people that are, that have worked, you know, very hard on, I mean, I know Salesforce one's probably been, you know, years in the making and there's a lot about it that I'm sure is pretty badass. Um, but they, you know, you can only do so much within the framework of the fact that you work for an enterprise software company and you've got a CEO who, literally lives on his mobile phone. He doesn't even use a computer. He's according to him. And you know, he lives, he, he lives in the world of talking points and conference calls. And so he's setting the direction, he's setting the parameters and the goals and making the demands on, you know, what he wants to be able to say. And then he says, go make that happen. And so, you know, all these smart people are working within those constraints. So they're doing awesome work. I mean, there's a, there's a lot under the hood that's really, really awesome. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, but is what it is. Yep. Let's see. So I have some boring stuff. Um, so a few months ago, I think it was, I think it was actually in the late summer, maybe um, Salesforce hired a 
a guy from Oracle who's you know some some big wig, Keith Block. It's kind of interesting because I read I remember reading an article about how um, there were a couple of existing executives at Salesforce, fairly high high up uh, people who were going to be leaving Salesforce because this guy Keith Block was coming in, and I think it's because both of them worked for. Uh, both of them worked for Keith Block at Oracle and they didn't like him. Um, but this guy is now, so Keith Block is the, like the, he's like the, is he not, he's not the chairman. What is he? The, I don't know. He's like basically second in command to Mark almost. Um, anyway, one of the people that left or that was essentially looking for a job on her way out was this, uh, some lady named, um, oh, Hillary. I love this. Kaplow McAdams, K-O-P-L-O-W. Kaplow or Ka- I like Kaplow. That's a pretty cool name. Hillary Kaplow McAdams. That's but anyway, a, that's um, a I great saw that comic book name. <laughs> Kaplow. Yeah, it's a what is that? An onomatopoeia? Yeah. Um, so she uh, she went to work for New Relic, um, as their what is she uh, chief revenue officer? I don't even know what that is. Anyway, New Relic's pretty cool. Um, I've used that on a couple of couple of apps for monitoring and stuff but anyway they're working on um what are they working on some i don't know some interesting initiative they they actually added um it's like a business intelligence layer on top of their monitoring i haven't seen that part but anyway so that's some boring executive shake-up news well i, I don't know I where think the other what's guy boring went, but, is that we don't have the background story of why we don't have the juicy gossipy details of, of why someone left so, okay, so a quiet but significant executive shakeup appears to be underway at Salesforce. Um, so, number one, Lynn Voidovich uh, from Andreessen Horowitz uh, became Salesforce's chief marketing officer. Um, and Hillary Kaplow McAdams, she was Salesforce's vice president for global sales. She'd been there for five years. Mm. She's going to be leaving before... Oh, wait, no, before that, she was at Oracle. Okay, yeah. Um, and also this guy, Blair Crump, who was president for enterprise, global enterprise sales left. Um, and interesting, he was replaced by another Oracle guy. So it's just like Salesforce is hiring all these Oracle people. That is interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, so CEO Mark Benioff tapped block as president and vice chairman. Oh, president and vice chairman. And as one source put it, without elaborating, Without elaborating, they don't want to work for Block. Exciting. <laughs> we didn't get to record last week, but it was an interesting week because that was a, a campaign week heavy uh, or campaign heavy week about uh, getting kids to learn how to code. Um, and so it was. It's this hour of code campaign, and there is, um, you know, a lot of. A lot of participants, at least in terms of the advertising and marketing, including President Obama, a bunch of celebrities, Ashton Kutcher and, and whoever else. Um, and so it was host uh, code.org, I think, was one of the hosts for this. And basically what it is is just encouraging some anyone. It's not doesn't have to be just kids, but I think kids is the primary target of this um, to get out there and code. And the, the premise is that everything we do is revolving around technology. and we're integrating it more and more into our lives. And the idea is that everyone should know how to code. And so I thought we'd, we'd listen to the, to the, the kind of video that was kind of the, the ad campaign for that. And um, mm-hmm. I think we'd go from there. Okay. 
Leia. And I'm Tanya. And we're lucky enough to be studying computer science. Hi, I'm Tanya. We think it's terrible that 90% of schools don't teach it. They definitely didn't offer it at my high school. Thanks, thanks. So we're trying to make this video to show that anybody can learn. We want to get 10 million students to do the Hour of Code. Hour of Code. Hour of Code. The Hour of Code. Hour of Code. Hour of Code. Hour of Code. Yeah, code. How do you... It's just like play 60, but for coding. <laughs> Yeah, what what what's being shown on the video is, is is a lot of just literal clips of celebrity kids, celebrity adult, celebrity, um, all talking about the hour of code. Yeah, so I think Warren Sapp, um, what's the Eric Cantor uh, congressional whip? Um, yeah, see, play sixty. That's isn't that what is that NFL their initiative to get kids off their butts for sixty minutes? This mm-hmm. is this is an initiative to get them back on their butts <laughs> instead of off their butt. Okay, yeah. you get him to get to the sunflower. Needs to do some actions. I got it. Hey. <laughs> and then we'll run it and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ashley, get your, it's amazing. There we go. There we go. First program. I wrote it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is the code that you just wrote. Okay. Okay. Hold on. Pause it right there. That that's so profound. Oh, that's the code I just wrote. <laughs> <laughs> and and so if you're not watching the video, what they're pointing at is the text of the code. And, and you know, for us, we know what that is. It's a string. You know, you go into the code and you write a hard-coded string and then you display it on the screen. Uh, whether or not that's coding, I don't know. I guess if you're right, it's it's in the code. It's hard-coded. Well, what's weird is if if he just typed that, I can understand if they ran it and it showed something on the, you know, some screen popped up and he said, oh, I, I created that. That'd be interesting. Yeah. But no, he literally wrote the code and they just, he was looking at the code that he wrote and said, I wrote that. Well, dude, did you just type it or not? <laughs> no, no. What they're actually looking at is the is what happened after they compiled it and ran it. No, they were looking at the code. I just saw it. I'm watching it. They were literally okay, looking well, at a screen of code. There were screens where they were pointing at the actual text and visual representation. So you're, yeah, you're, maybe you're was, looking maybe at a different bad. clip that I focused on. It was, it was bad video editing, I guess. Yeah. All right. It was like FBI hacker symbols <laughs> and stuff. A little bit of problem solving, a little bit of logic. It's like instructions. Programming is a lot easier today. Don't just play on your phone. Program it. All right. Awesome. How does someone go about getting a job? Maybe take an online class, find a class at a community college. <laughs> yeah, one of the best paying jobs in the world. I think medicine's moving into the whole computer age. Technology touches every part of our lives. If you can create technology, you can change the world. So we're excited that you are participating in today's Hour of Code. Astronauts. We just did two lines of code. Four lines. Seven lines. Five lines. Five lines. Sixty lines of code. Ninety-nine lines. Sixty lines. Eighteen lines of code. Seventy-five lines of code. Because the more lines of code it takes, the better an app it is, right? Uh, you know, after listening to that, I wonder how many lines of code have I written in my career? It's got to be in billions, right? Probably. Oh, doesn't matter how old you are. Those are brilliant. The hour of code. The hour of code. The hour of code. Whether you're a young man or a young woman, whether you live in a city or a rural area, everybody in this country should learn how to program a computer. And I just completed the hour of code. It's actually really easy to learn. Girls should learn this too. Understand that language that's going to be the future. Anyone can learn computer science. And you can learn too. Jack Dorsey, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, all of y'all, I'm learning. Give it a shot. Here, now they can't tell me nothing. We give that to the people. Spread it across the country. Labels out here, now they can't tell me nothing. We give it to the people. Spread it across the country. So who's behind this? I like that song, by the way. It's a fun song. 
Who's behind it? Um, I first heard about it on code.org and that's where the video is hosted, I believe. So I believe it's part of the code.org site. I'm not sure who runs that, but they obviously have quite a bit of support from celebrities and politicians, etc. Mm, it's just, it's just one of these PSA things that uh, will come and go. I'm all for encouraging code. I think, I think it's a great campaign. I think, I think people should at least understand and know what it takes to build these things. But I don't think that. I think they should, if they're interested. Yeah. I think you should do what you're interested and in. And that, that kind of, that kind of leads me to, to what, to why I'm bringing this up. And so why I'm bringing it up. I mean, I, I've never heard Obama say, don't just drive your car, build, build a car. <laughs> I never heard him say that. Well, I think because building software is much more accessible than building a car, which takes quite a bit more resources. With code, you just need a text editor, right? I guess cars probably run on a lot of code nowadays. So maybe you are in effect, you could kind of build a car. Absolutely, you could. Well, you could build apps to run on a car. Um, so anyways, mm, so yeah. I, I was aware of the campaign and, you know, I'm not going to knock the campaign. I think it's great to encourage people to go out there and code and at least expose it to kids. And, and maybe a percentage of them will go, Hey, I really like this and I really want to do this and they'll make a great career out of it and they'll start building some great things. Um, but so this, I, I, there's this, um, article from, uh, Sean Blanda who's, who's, uh, on 9099U. So the site is 99U.com. And so he wrote an article shortly after that week. Um, what I really hate is he doesn't date his articles. The articles on that site aren't dated. But what I did is I looked at the earliest comment post and that was about four days ago. So that was Monday. Um, and the article's titled, you don't need to learn to code plus other truths about the future of careers. And I, I think that title really says, expresses what I was feeling after seeing those campaign ads is that in that short span and that very hyped up, you know, great music, fast moving pace of everyone having fun coding is this underlying message that in order to be valuable in the future, have a valuable career, you have to know how to code and how to do this technology. And I think it misses the complete point of what makes a good developer. You know, a good developer isn't someone that knows how to code. A good developer is someone who knows how to, yes, code, but also knows how to incorporate other aspects um, of the world around them to build a technology that people want to use to build a technology that people gravitate to that changes their lives or, or, or at least impacts them in some way. You know, the, the existence of any line of code doesn't, doesn't do that. It, it's how you package it, present it and build it. So did you rate, this is a, um, reminded me of this, but it, I think it was sometime it was a couple of years ago, Jeff Atwood wrote an article called, please don't learn to code. <laughs> It says the whole um, everyone should learn programming meme has gotten so out of control that the mayor of New York City actually vowed to learn to code in 2012. But he's saying, you know, I believe programming is important in the right context for some people, but so are a lot of skills. I would no more urge everyone to learn programming than I would urge everyone to learn plumbing. And I agree with that. That's why I said, I think if you're interested, great. But I don't think this is not this is not some humanitarian thing that I think we need to get all our politicians involved in. and. I mean, yeah, schools should have it. I don't agree with that thing that 90% of schools don't have any kind of computer science. I mean, what, what kind of schools are these? I mean, even the crummy small schools around here have K 
computer science things nowadays. So I, yeah, and the curriculum, is, especially my daughter's school, and even in preschool, they were using technology. They were using computers, and even in her, her elementary school, starting out in kindergarten, a big part of the curriculum is technology. So you know, a couple more things that Jeff says. It you know it assumes that more code in the world is an inherently desirable thing. Um, it assumes that coding is the goal. It puts the method before the problem, which is what you were talking right. about, John. Maybe coding isn't even the solution. Um, it assumes that adding naive, novice, and not even sure they like this whole programming thing, coders to the workforce is a positive thing for the world. It applies that there's a thin, easily permeable membrane between learning to program and getting paid to program professionally. Yeah, and there, there's two parts to this. There's that getting paid part, which, which I think we can talk about next. But the part that bothers me is that everyone should know how to code. But how many times have we come across someone, either a client or, 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 or whatever we were doing, that knew just enough to make our jobs horrible? Because they knew just enough that they wanted to get in there and start messing with it. They wanted to see our code. They wanted to understand everything. And it took us longer because we were trying to fight against what they think they know. Yeah, you'll really get people who are the equivalent of a bull in a china shop. Just they know just enough to make an make an absolute mess of the whole place. Um, yeah, but Jeff uh, says at the end here, I, I humbly suggest that we spend our time learning how to number one research voraciously and understand how the things around us work at a basic level and communicate. This is number two: communicate effectively with other human beings. Yep. And so getting back to that getting paid part, because I have a funny story about that. So a good friend of mine, he's a developer, and um, his, his parents decided, hey, why don't we learn to code? I think we can get a job and make money. He does it. And so, so there's two parts to that. There's the part that they kind of just dismissed what he did as something easy to pick up, and they could just go to some class on the weekend and learn, and they'll, all of a sudden they'll start making what he makes. And this guy, he's, he's a great developer. He's very detail oriented. Um, and so, so that story in itself had it, had its funny moment with that in itself. They went to two or three classes before they dropped out. And this, and again, this was just HTML, CSS stuff. This wasn't, you know, C level stuff, assembly stuff, even Java or C sharp or anything like that. It was just HTML and CSS, which to me is far more accessible than any of those other languages. I agree. And then you've got all these other things like, you know, knowing how to frame and solve problems, um, you know, understanding um, patterns and distributed computing and networking and, and persistence. And I mean, there's, there's a whole heck of a lot to it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If you want to, if you want to take 10 years um, and really apply yourself, um, let's even say five years and really apply yourself. I mean, I think most people could, um, would have a good shot at it, but it's not something you're going to be great at in a year. Right. I think it takes, it, it certainly takes a level of experience and a lot of times it takes some creativity and maybe, maybe focusing on a particular industry, understanding the needs of an industry and being able to provide solutions, meaningful solutions to that industry, whether it be healthcare or manufacturing or, or whatever industry you, you, want to focus on. I think yeah. that's where the value comes in. If you know how to code and you know, how, you know, this industry really well, you are extremely valuable. If you just know how to code, that doesn't mean anything. 
I agree. Well, I mean, I really think it's, it's 80 to 90% of developers spend their whole career and don't really learn those things. We just, we just talked about, which is fine. I mean, you, I guess you need these just line, you know, cubicle developers or whatever you call them. Um, and I think that kind of circles back to, to some of the Salesforce technologies as well, because Salesforce does make coding and development very accessible to, to a much larger audience than, than previously. Um, and the danger of that is that they don't really know. They don't really know what they're getting into. So they, they end up making, they end up developing these solutions that may not actually work very well. Well, I, th- I think people don't realize when they've crossed the line into the territory of we need a real, we need real engineers. This is a big enough problem and we're running our business on it and it's got to be able to scale and be maintained and be comprehensible. And we, we now need someone who's a real engineer. People don't realize when they've crossed that line. And I think that's the trouble that companies get themselves in. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why you see so many rescue projects. But I think, I mean, I guess I think it's a net positive though that, and I don't think Salesforce necessarily made anything accessible that wasn't before. I, I, I do think though that Salesforce has always been very open with their platform, with their documentation, with getting, you know, again, they're really good at the whole getting started thing. Um, and I, I think that's a net good, a net positive. I just think I wish there was more leadership around knowing when you, you know, knowing how to take that next step, knowing when you've crossed that line into, okay, we should get serious about this. Um, you know, instead of having the, you know, receptionist do some JavaScript or a visual, you know, keep hacking away at this visual force page. It's now a monstrosity, you know, either send, either send the person and get them adequately trained or, you know, find the, find the right person. Um, so many companies just don't know. I mean, they're not, particularly if they're not an engineering or an oriented company, they don't, you know, you don't know what you don't know. You don't, you don't even know that that line exists. So how would you know if you crossed it until things completely just stop working and you can't, you you can't evolve your technology anymore because it's just stuck in quicksand. Yeah. I I think going back to that training point you made, I think there's a, there is a certain amount of training that can be done, but at some point there does need to be someone with, with the right mindset with that engineering skill set to actually solve a certain problem. And I think being able to effectively identify at what point you reach that and when to bring someone in is far more critical. And the interesting thing about, you know, programming is that some of the best programmers programmers I know don't even have a science or math or engineering background. Um, they just, but they do, you know, they have the, they could have, if that's what, if they knew that's what they wanted to do when they were younger, that's they would have done that. They would have taken that route and, and been, and been good at it, but they didn't take that route. They came to programming, you know, later in life or as a second career. And some people are just excellent. You know, it turns out that I don't understand this, but you know, people who, are musicians or musically inclined, I think tend to be uh, in some cases, really good engineers. Um, and I think, it, I think it has a lot to do with thinking symbolically. Um, you know, if you understand music um, or if you understand, you know, like the, if you, if you're good at algebra and you just, you just get this, you know, you understand, uh, you know, symbolism and, and abstraction and things like mm-hmm. that, then, I mean, some of these people are the ones that end up being excellent developers. And so, you know, I think anyone 
who's interested should do it. But I just, I, I push back on the, everyone should do it. No, I don't agree with that. I don't think everyone should, you know, to Jeff's point, you know, go learn plumbing. I just don't think it makes sense. If you, if you're inclined, I mean, sure. But if you're not, there's plenty of other stuff to do. And that's just, that's a false, you know, it's a false something, some kind of logical fallacy. Yeah. And I think, um, th- that's actually brought up in this article. He actually quotes, um, uh, I don't, I don't get the reference to Cohen, but he's quoting someone named Cohen and I, I, I don't have a, all the article in front of me, but I remember he, par- he quoted him as, as describing, uh, Mark Zuckerberg who created Facebook and, and he said that he was a great programmer and that there's, there's a lot of appeal around Facebook. Um, but what made Zuckerberg pro- a great programmer, what made Facebook great, wasn't so much that he was just a good programmer, but he also has a, a background in psychology. You know, he, he has other interests. He has other things that are kind of balancing him out. And, and those kind of things kind of contributed to the success of Facebook. That's interesting. Has, has anyone who would actually be in a position to know ever accused Mark Zuckerberg of being a good programmer? would accuse I, I can't tell if that's sarcasm or not no it's it's not sarcasm it's just i'm not sure he is i think he may be better at psychology and screwing other people than he is an actual developer well the the site had to start somewhere and someone had to code that and i, I think consensus is that zuckerberg coded that yeah but did, did you see the original facebook <laughs> or <laughs> several of the the earlier Oh, versions. come on. We know version one is always throwaway. Um, yeah, I guess. All right. I think we beat that one to death. Um, on, unless you had something else nope. to say about it. I'm done. Okay. Um, so speaking of Salesforce having some cool backend engineering, they hired, um, what's this guy? Oh, it was Damien Katz who, um, I guess he, so he created note, um, couch DB. Oh yeah. Which is one of the, which is one of these NoSQL databases, nope. but they hired him. Um, I guess just this week um, doesn't say exactly what he'll be working on. In fact, they were somewhat coy about it. Um, oh, he says, yeah, I don't know if I'm at Liberty to talk about the project. Well, he also says, but if we can pull it off, we will change a lot more than just Salesforce. Um, that's interesting. And Salesforce has finally actually started to, to do some open source things. They all, they, um, another thing they just recently, uh, started or they're, they're trying to, I guess, incubate an open source project. That's a query engine for uh, one of the, one of the NoSQL databases. It's not couch. It's an, it's another one. Um, but they're really starting to, I think to try to share some of this open source. So I'm, I'm not sure if that's a hint as, Oh, it was H base. I think I can't remember, but that's interesting. I didn't hear about that. So, well, and here's nothing. This article says, it says it's obvious that Oracle isn't a great fit for Salesforce's database infrastructure, says analyst Kurt Monash of Monash Research. There's some guy sitting at home in his parents' basement. <laughs> Salesforce.com makes little use of Oracle's relational features, and there are many more ways to engineer security and reliability than were, than were when Salesforce first adopted Oracle over a decade ago. Um, not, not sure about that. Oh, did, did, uh, there's something in here about how Oracle is no longer fit for relational. Oh yeah. Salesforce. Yeah. Salesforce makes little use of Oracle's relational features. What? 
I don't believe that. I think that's that's what they make use of. The relational? Fe- I don't think so. I think they make use of, of the indexing features. I don't think they make use of the relational. You don't think they use it as a relational database? No. I know for a fact they do from stack traces, I see. I'm sure that- Why would you say they don't use it as a relational I'm, database? No, I'm, I'm saying that a good portion of the data is not represented relationally. A good portion of your actual data that you're storing in Salesforce is not stored that way. Now, some other processes, um, the base level stuff might be using those relationships, but I think your actual customer data is not stored that way. Oh, I think it is. That's CRM is all, it's totally relational data. Cust- you know, accounts, contacts, activities, opportunities, cases, that, that's all, that is, that is relational only data. Only in a sense, yes, but it's, it's artificial. It, it has to go through the layers. Okay. <laughs> Okay, we'll we'll come back to that and research that more because I'm I'm pretty sure that that there's a very well, you're not going to find out you're not going to there's they they have some white papers, about. white papers that talk about some some of the technologies and how they store that data and I'm pretty sure it's a fairly flat model in terms of your actual data now some of the relationships in terms of you know org instance ID that that actually segments the data a lot of that's probably relational to other things if if Salesforce didn't store this data as relational, there would be no way that you could run this type of SQL queries that you can run. That's only, uh, that's only accomplishable. I with, think that the evidence that they don't data. is in the limited um, SQL syntax, the limit on joins, the limit on the type of joins, the limit on the security model, all of those things, I think are evidence that the fact that they don't use relationships. I mean, the fact that you can query, you can query and filter on just about any field. I mean, all that kind of stuff. That's, that's all relational. But anyway, you know what? Um, that reminds me, you talked about white papers. This, I, this, this came up in a, in a related project that I'm working on, but do you know if Salesforce claims to like, so the data, you know, do they encrypt data at rest? Like their data, but if you were able to, you know, walk out with a hard drive out of Salesforce's data center with an Oracle database on it, is that data encrypted? On the disk? I have no idea. I don't either. And I've looked, I looked recently to find out, I looked at all their, I found their page, you know, that lists like all their certification, um, the certifications they have and ISO and whatever. I can't remember what, what all they are. SAS and all that stuff. And whatever replaced SAS 70, there's something, there's a new one. Um, and, and, but nowhere do they, do they say that they encrypt data at rest? I'm I'm not sure that they would want to, would they? Well, some companies require it. Like I like I can tell you that like um Yeah, but it might be a lot one of the, the financial it might be one of those things that you HR can, systems, they definitely uh encrypt data at rest. So if you were to able to, to get access to you know their data systems or storage systems, right. Um it would be encrypted. Yeah, but what I, what I'm thinking is that it's not something they just publicly publish that if you had a requirement you could request proof of how they're handling that data to for your internal requirements but i'm not sure if the the underlying technologies or security and all those kind of mechanisms if it's something they would publish publicly yeah i couldn't find it um hey did you hear that um i read something about how salesforce may run on OpenStack. um so this is another Ben Keeps article. Keps, I don't know how to say his name. Um, this has something to do with the soup, the the HP. Hang on, the HP Superpod. <laughs> um, see these? Okay, the so-called Superpod consists of specific HP hardware. Um, 
So some Rackspace guys who stated that Salesforce applications will imminently become available on services on servers running OpenStack. Um, OpenStack, as many will know, is an open source cloud operating system that um, was begun jointly by Rackspace and NASA. Yeah. Uh, so and also HP has gone like they're fully dedicated to OpenStack now. So that's another connection. Um, but he says if, if Salesforce were, were to broaden its OpenStack availability, it would make sense that they would do they would do so on OpenStack. Um, after all, in doing so, they open up a possibility for Salesforce to be delivered via a plethora of different service providers. I don't see that happening. Yeah, I, I, you know, the Superpod thing surprised me because it, it's it's still funny. I'm reading Mark try to uh, claim that that's not single tenant, but but anyway, um, <laughs> that's just because it is single tenant. That surprised me. They did that, but I think just as with kind of encrypted data at rest, there are some customers that the only way they're going to run Salesforce is if they can run it on their own hardware, basically maybe in Salesforce's data center, but it's on their own hardware. They've got a key and they can, you know, and they've got access. I, I just and, have, have trouble seeing how that model is going to work for them with the amount of updates that they push and how traditionally self-hosted applications tend to lag in, in, uh, updates. And, and be, because a company owns that hardware and owns that software, they're not going to let it change easily. Well, I think even on the SuperPod, I think you don't, I don't, I think Salesforce still 100% manages it. That's true, but that's still a hosted environment. It's just dedicated hosting. It, it basically is. It's like, it's like, it's almost like, what's it called? Co, uh, it's co-location, right? Yeah. Hey, we'll put our big HP SuperPod, Oracle, whatever it is, uh, Grid, Ultra, uh, what's their, what's the big Oracle box called? Anyway, the Sun box, but you know, we'll put it in your your data center Salesforce, but we don't want any other people's data on it we're not sharing we don't want to be multi-tenant um but you guys you know salesforce you install and manage and run it for us and i, I think that's going to be i think that's going to be your only option i don't think they're ever going to let you self-host salesforce i think there's too much ip involved in in doing so and i think it's just it's not a model that they're going to want to support you know i wonder if you do do that if you do use that option you're a you know mega corp um, I wonder if Salesforce even lets you have access to it. I wonder if it's one of those things where you have to deliver your server to Salesforce. They'll put it in their data center and promise not to put anyone else's data on it, but you don't have access to it anymore. Yeah, but that's no different than a super pod, except you get to pick the hardware. I'm basically saying it is a super pod. Well, it's a super pod where you define the hardware. I mean, no, guys, I don't think you get this. Well, yeah, the OpenStack thing, maybe. Maybe so. What advantage is that? You're basically saying, I think I know how to run your software better, so I'm going to pick the hardware for it. To run it on. Yeah. That just does know. not make sense it, at all. And if any company is yeah. pushing for that and they're that big to make it happen, I, I just I just think that that's a wrong move. Yep. So Oracle bought um responses, which I don't know anything about. It's one of these, you know, exact target or whatever you know, marketing, integrated marketing, social mobile, display, email, all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I know responsive. I Responses. Yeah, I'm trying to remember yeah. where I've heard that from, but yeah, I've, I've heard of them. But what's what's up with this arms race with acquiring marketing companies? It's it's like a, well, it's pretty much just Oracle and well, you know who it is? It's Oracle, Salesforce, and Adobe, because Adobe bought Omniture and they've bought some other marketing companies. I don't know anything about this stuff, by the way. I just I don't I don't think it's anything new. I mean, these are companies that are heavy into CRM and CRM is closely tied to marketing 
I mean, it's, it's its main data feed for marketing. Well, you know, I think the, the unspoken or the, what's the phrase? Unspoken rule. I don't know. No. So the real truth about CRM up until recently, relatively recently in technology history, CRM has actually been pretty crummy. It's, if you think of Siebel and Sales, even like Salesforce and, and Oracle CRM, all in Act and all those crummy things. Just until recently, CRM has been really, it's basically been a multi-user contact manager with a few extra features maybe. Um, but this marketing stuff is really changing the game. It's, it's, there's a lot more interesting um, technology and like data science and things going into these marketing companies, which I think is why you're seeing Salesforce and Oracle and, and Adobe and IBM snatching these companies up because that's where the, that's where the battle is being fought. Now that's where the interesting stuff is happening. That's where social and email and you know, all the cool stuff is happening. Well, I, I think from my perspective, I think what we're seeing is that the, what used to be the marketing technology, you know, sending email campaigns, all those kind of things that's fastly becoming a must have almost, if you have CRM, you have to have this anyways. And so I think these, they're trying to incorporate more of those. And what's happening to these marketing applications is they're actually trying to go a step above just kind of sending emails and tracking, you know, who opened the email and all that kind of stuff into these higher level analytic things that you're mentioning. And so I think if, if these smaller companies or, you know, companies that have done well for themselves, but need to reach that other level, their options are either get more funding and start building those analytic tools or get acquired by some of these other companies. Yeah. Well, they were big. I mean, they're getting bought for like billion for billions. These aren't little companies. Um, no, but were, but were they heavy? Were they heavy exit. in analytics? Were they heavy in, in, uh, I forgot the, well, sales, Salesforce isn't heavy in analytics. It's still, as far as analytics goes, it's, it's not, Again, as with most things in Salesforce, it's none of its best of breed. It's the fact that it's somewhat integrated, hopefully, in some cases. But Salesforce's analytics is not great. But I just think it's interesting. You know, think of think of what Salesforce's marketing capability, you know, their marketing functionality was before Radiant 6, Buddy, all these things. I mean, have you ever worked with campaigns? Do you remember what, what it was? It's just, it's almost nothing. It's like you can you can create a campaign and link some contacts and leads to it and say whether or not, and you can link an opportunity to do it. So, you know, whether some person bought, and that's about it, you know, and some, again, well, that, that, that's put, on top of that, put on top of that, some fairly poor analytics. And that's, that was Salesforce's marketing functionality. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. I mean, CRM inherently doesn't really cover marketing. I mean, it, it feeds marketing in terms of prospects or, or marketing feeds the CRM in terms of prospects. And, and some of those, some of that information needs to get tied together so you can kind of measure your ROI. But I think what's fast happening is that since we have all these new tools and all these new analytics and all these new investment in, in, in the technologies that sales is getting more interested in this data and they want access to this marketing data where before it was just marketing that wanted it. All they wanted to know is, is all they wanted to do is, was sell more. But I think more and more we're seeing sales, sales, per, sales, people, sales, teams, sales management. I think they're far more interested in the marketing data now than they were before. I could be wrong, but that's kind of my, my take on, on why some of this consolidation that's happening. Yeah, I think, well, I think a lot of it's just that there's a lot more data now, you know, people are generating more data. So 
you need a solution that can suck in all this data and make sense of it. And also, I mean, CRM was becoming commoditized. You know, Salesforce was doing a pretty good job of CRM, and so were some other people. And it's like, what? Do you, where are you going to innovate? You've got to. I mean, I, you know, look at think of social enterprise. Remember social enterprise? That was an attempt to at least create create the perception of innovation, but in fact, there wasn't a whole lot there. Um, and I think Salesforce is still trying to figure out how to. I mean, they they obviously have put together the cash to buy these, um, to make these acquisitions, but the challenge is getting them integrated and and selling them. Yeah. Um, well, I think I think maybe I think maybe the lessons they learned from that, or at least lessons that the industry learned in terms of social media is that it's really another marketing channel. I mean, yeah, you can, you can, it's, it's a customer support channel as well, but I think their value to their business is also is, is that it's a huge marketing channel for them. And and because of that social has to transition into these marketing tools because marketing tools inherently know how to handle that volume of data, know how to segment that data, know how to analyze it and, and make sense of it. Whereas CRM is, is far different. Yeah. But supposedly um, the, the speculation or whatever is that that Oracle's buying of responses was just all about responding to Salesforce and just the one upsmanship that's going on with that. Well, they recently bought Eloqua, which was really big. Um, yep. So I, I don't know, maybe, maybe both of them as major players in the CRM market, I guess who's next Microsoft, Microsoft needs to buy some more marketing companies. They don't, they're not really in that space. Yeah, they um, are with dynamics. No, they do. Yeah. I mean, they have, they do have dynamics, which has a CRM piece. Um, but I don't know. They, maybe I just don't follow Microsoft as much. I just don't hear, I don't hear them being as active and participating in this, in this race as much as these other players are. Do you, I mean, I, I don't know. I just don't. I don't. I, don't I mean, I, of my, most of my interaction is migrating off of their tools onto Salesforce. Um, didn't you have someone migrating from Salesforce to something else? Was that Dynamics? No, that was Sage. Ah, okay. Yeah. That's always interesting. I'm so used to get going the other way. <laughs> yep. Me too. Hmm. Is anything else interesting going on? It's kind of been, it's been, you know, it's kind of right after Dreamforce, especially with the, the controversy over the hackathon, there was, there was some you know, initial news, but boy, it's really slowed down a lot since then. There's not a whole lot going well, on. We've got a major holiday coming up next week and people are, Slowing down. That's true. Yeah. There's going to be nothing between now and halfway through January, probably. Yeah. So what'd you bring to drink? I thought you had another, uh, do we, uh, do we do both your clips already? I decided to forego the the other one. Okay. All right. Maybe we'll save that one for next time. Or, no, it, or it didn't end up being relevant because I heard a lot of it within that same clip. So. Okay. Um, drink. I've got, uh, Glenn Morangi, like just the 10 year scotch. It's pretty good. Um, oh yeah, you recently uh, decided to give scotch a good try. Well, Jay suggested that I try this. So, how one. are you doing with that? Is this your your first scotch? No, I mean, I used to drink, um, like I'd, every once in a while, I would drink some Johnny Walker. I think black or blue. I can't remember mm-hmm. um, which label it was, but but I never really got into scotch, and I still don't know that it's going to be something I'm I'm going to like a whole lot. It's it's pretty decent, but this is um, this is you know, like the entry level of Glen Morangi. And I mean, there's just, I don't know, there's a lot of different scotches. It's kind of intimidating, but you know, I don't know. I'm trying to learn how to appreciate it and discern, you know, the flavors and things. So it's interesting. I always like trying new things. Yeah. Yeah. 
What about you? So I made a uh, Johnny Collins today. A Johnny Collins? A John John Collins. <laughs> Tom Tom no, Collins. John Collins. And that, okay. That's what's interesting is that there's a lot of Collins. <laughs> they get around, man. They do. It's Collins. And and really the only differentiator is what the base alcohol is. And so like there's a Tom Collins, which I think is gin. Um, there's a vodka Collins, obviously vodka. There's a John Collins, which is a uh, whiskey. That's bourbon, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then this is, this is the funny one. A Juan Collins. Can you guess what a Juan Collins uses? Uh, either a tequila or what is it? Mescla? <laughs> ting, ting, ting. Tequila. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So hmm. I made that. The ingredients are actually pretty similar to a whiskey sour. Um, so it's, you know, lemon juice, you know, simple sugar or sugar syrup, um, whiskey and club soda. I actually did one minor variation in that I used uh, sparkling water and it was a, it was all I had. So the variation was kind of forced, but it was a, that LaCroix um, sparkling water. My wife drinks it and it's got like a berry flavor. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And it actually turned out pretty good. I actually enjoyed it, but I learned one thing with a Collins because of the type of ingredients, they really, really don't mix well on their own. So you can't just pour them and think that the act of pouring will mix them sufficiently. You kind of have to let it sit. You kind of have to stir it and mix it really well or, or shake it um, to get the ingredients to really mix well. Otherwise, you get these really weird flavors, sometimes really bitter, sometimes really sweet. And until you mix it, you don't really get to taste the drink. Yeah. Sometimes drinks, when the ingredients are significantly different, like densities, yeah. they'll, they'll, they'll remain and that, I think that was it. So, I think the, the lemon, sugar, and all that kind of stuff had a certain density. And when you pour the bourbon, you could see it kind of created a layer and the club soda I thought would mix it, you know, with the bubbles and all that kind of stuff, whatever it is, but it just didn't. Yeah. So. Cool. But I, I originally, originally tried to to bring a wine and my, I think the wine was bad. I had a really bitter taste. It was a wine I had before. And I also, the cork broke on me, but I thought that was just because I, it was because I corked, uncorked it wrong. But I also went back and looked at it and it was actually pretty dry. So I think it oxidized and, and I think it was a bad bottle. Take it back. I tossed it. Get your money back. I tossed it. All right, man. Another one in the can. Another one into that. I'll let you go first. Good day, sir. Good day, sir. <laughs>